The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, and Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks. We do have a special introductory offer to those of you who might want to try those letters each separately. You can call Claudio Bassi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com, M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com. Also, the best way to follow everything that I do, including my newsletter and this radio show, is to go to jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R media.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank uh, our sponsors for making this show economically viable. And for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Bonanza, Eurasian Minerals, Prophecy Platinum, and Rye Patch Gold. Well, this week we have three fascinating feature guest. Dr. John Coleman is back to pick up from where he left off last week in our discussion of the Kennedy assassination. Last week, Dr. Coleman talked about how Kennedy had gotten off on the wrong foot, so to speak, with the Committee for 300 uh, when he denied the access uh, to Henry Kissinger, uh, denied him access to the White House. Now, Dr. Kissinger was a main connecting point or a conduit of information and control, according to Dr. Coleman, from the Committee of 300 uh, to the White House. Kennedy's call for an end to the Vietnam War in 19, by 1965 uh, and his executive order to essentially get rid of the Federal Reserve uh, and to have uh, Congress uh, create money, as the Constitution actually requires, that was the main reason, in Dr. Coleman's view, that... Uh, that, Senate, that uh, President Kennedy uh, was murdered, and he also believes that Oswald was not uh, the murderer, that he had nothing virtually to do with it, 
uh, and that, in fact, uh, a team of crack hitmen uh, were, uh, were commissioned to do the job. According to Coleman, on the day of uh, Kennedy's death, Secret Service personnel were called off-duty so that Kennedy could be done away with. This is a fascinating material uh, to me, and it rings true from all that I have read from various other accounts. I would encourage you to listen to last week's show, which is archived uh, at my site on voiceamerica.com. Also, I would strongly suggest that you buy Dr. Coleman's book titled The Committee of 300 and also his book titled The Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. Both books, I believe, are every bit as important, uh, but especially the committee, for th- the committee of 300 is every bit as important as Ed Griffin's Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, I think, in understanding who the powers behind our throne are, in understanding why policies are made the way they are, uh, to take care of the rich and the powerful at the expense of the average average people. i just uh, let you know that you can contact Dr. Coleman uh, or order his book, that is, by calling 800-942-0821, 800-942-0821, or you can go to Dr. Coleman's website at uh, coleman300.com, that's C-O-L-E-M-A-N, 300.com. Coleman also has a weekly newsletter in which he brings current events into focus by really tying in uh, current events with the bigger picture as outlined in the Committee of uh, 300 and other books that he's written. Well, unless I'm being conned, I do find Dr. Coleman to be totally believable and honest. Frankly, there is little reason for someone to go out on a limb and talk about the establishment as Coleman does at this point in time unless one is driven by a sense of honesty and integrity uh, to believe the establishment account is anything other than propaganda uh, is, uh, I think, the height of naivete. Of course, there are many naive people in America, but most of you who listen to this show, I believe, are not among them. The ruling elite that Dr. Coleman talks about are more than just a little interested in the economy, of course. They are, in fact, manipulators of the economy and do all kinds of bad things to average people for their own gain. So we will all want to know where the markets and the economy uh, is going. Just a couple of days back, an old friend and colleague of mine, David Tice, was on Bloomberg Radio, and David believes that we are still in deep trouble and that the rise in equity prices and commodity prices is largely artificial, created, and caused only by money created out of nothing, uh, so it is uh, destined to fail, ultimately. I share David's view very much from an Austrian economics perspective. I indeed have held that perspective, and it has not served me badly over the last decade or so, for sure. And it has allowed me to get into gold and my subscribers to get into gold very early, well over 10 years ago, before the bull market in gold uh, started. Uh, I believe that, too, um, that many uh, people do believe in a more bullish global economic scene because they're bullish on China. They see it as an engine of global economic growth. Well, our next guest, uh, he will be joining us late in the first hour of today's show, is Gordon Chang, who is himself a well-known radio show host, co-host, actually, and writes a column for Forbes magazine. Gordon Chang has had a law practice in the past. He is from China. He has worked in mainland China and in Hong Kong as well. He is very, very knowledgeable about China, and he sets the stage in today's show for a basic understanding of what China is today and how it has evolved from the days at the beginning of the 19th century 
uh, until and through Mao Zedong and up until the present. Uh, Gordon Chang believes that the Chinese economy is in for a very major decline and very possibly some very extreme political upheavals as well. We can only hope that he is wrong about that, but he does make, I think, a very reasonable argument uh, for why investors should be very cautious about China and investments related to China, like commodity investments as well. Uh, we uh, also, uh, David uh, has written, uh, I should say Gordon has written a book titled The Coming Collapse of China. It is a, a fascinating read, very, very interesting, very, very fascinating. If you're interested at all in Chinese history, well, you should be because China is a superpower. It is, it is gaining a superpower status. There's no question about that. Uh, with a billion-plus people, it is uh, a power to be reckoned with. Some people have argued that uh, Gordon Chang uh, has been warning of a decline uh, in China ever since 2001 when he wrote that book, and so far it hasn't happened. And when I questioned uh, Gordon about that, well, he noted in his book that he talked about a major decline. Um, that was in, in 2001 when he wrote that book, and he suggested that it would be about a decade off. David finally believes that we are very, very close to that decline and a major, major implosion in the Chinese economy. Well, finally, on an optimistic note, we could use that, I think. There are some reasons, I think, to be optimistic that things could eventually get better in the United States, notwithstanding the enormous amount of indebtedness and tomfoolery that's been heaped upon us by the Committee of 300 and the policymakers in Washington. Uh, of course, uh, I say that assuming that we are not stripped totally of our liberties by an increasingly fascist government, fascism from both parties, I might add. Rick Rule made me very aware of the profound significance of the converging technologies in the oil and gas business, uh, which has the potential, I believe, to allow the United States to be a serious big-time exporter of energy in the next several years. With that could come a resurgence, I think, of the U.S. economy, or at least an ability to slowly grow our way out of this hellish mess uh, that has been heaped upon us by the policymakers and the Federal Reserve and the Congress. So today I have, uh, I have asked Keith Schaefer to join me once again to talk about the shale, oil, and gas uh, uh, topics. And Keith has, uh, even has a, a very exciting oil and gas stock that he, I expect he will tell you about. Today's figures, um, today I, re I really believe this is going to be an extremely interesting show. I'm really looking forward to all three guests for some very interesting discussion and also uh, to help point us in the direction of making some money. We have to go to our first commercial break, but when we come back, joining me will be Dr. John Coleman. Please stay with me. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again Dr. John Coleman. Uh, this is the third time that John has been with me on this show. Uh, he's back again because I find his book, the, Col- the Committee of 300, to be a fascinating account of history. I think one that is r- certainly rings true to me based on all the other research that I've done. Uh, it, it is, a, I think, a, a more accurate uh, vision of history and our Constitution and where the United States has gone astray than most anything else that we hear from the mainstream media. Dr. Coleman, I believe, is probably as close as anybody I've had on this show to, to Ron Paul, who's also been on this show several times. Uh, but I think Dr. Coleman's message is also resonating very, very well with listeners to this show. Uh, we've gotten some very positive feedback, including one uh, individual uh, who wrote and he said we uh, Jay we listened to Dr. Coleman for we could listen to Dr. Coleman for hours last week's interview was among the top 5 on your show so far dating back to March of 19 uh, ni- 1999 uh, so welcome John really good to have you back again well thanks for the opportunity to be with you we I know that we're not going to have in the next uh, 15 20 minutes enough time to begin to cover everything I'd like to today but I do want you to tell our listeners where they can uh, they can sign up for your for your book, uh, buy your book, and, and sign up for your excellent newsletter. I have a phone number, a toll free number, eight hundred nine four two zero eight two one eight hundred nine four two zero eight two one, and your website is coleman three hundred dot com. Do I have that right? That's correct. Coleman spelled C O L E M A N. Yes. Coleman three hundred dot com. Excellent. Okay. 
uh, without wasting any time, let's get right to it. Uh, last week we focused on the uh, we focused a little bit, quite a bit, actually most of the time on the assassination of John Kennedy, and you mentioned um, that Kennedy really sort of got off on the wrong foot early in his administration when he denied access to the White House to Henry Kissinger. Uh, I want to ask you to review that once again, maybe, and, and tell our listeners, you know, what, why was was Kissinger uh, not allowed to enter the White House, and what did that mean for the Committee of 300? Um, I'd like to tell you that Kissinger's real name is Heinz Stern, and uh, I'd say also known as AKA Dr. Kissinger, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the conduit for the instructions from the Royal Institute of International Affairs at Chatham House in London to convey the orders of the of the ruling elite to the President of the United States. And that had been done ever since the presidentship Woodrow Wilson. When Kennedy discovered this, he uh, sent for Kissinger and he told him that he is sacked at this moment and he's not welcome at the White House again, and he's not to set foot in the White House. And from that moment on, the important conduit of the Royal Institute of International Affairs to the president was lost, which made it very much harder for their instructions to be carried out. And Okay, uh, okay let, let me ask you, the Royal, the, I want to get this complete name, this organization that I, I take it was a member of the Committee of 300. It's the Royal Institute? Well, it's one of the cogs in the wheel. It's one of like giant, if you look at the, at the Committee of 300, as a giant piece of machinery, yes. this is one of the cogs in the wheel that made it go round and round. Okay, and, and it's uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Okay, okay, known by the abbreviation R I A A. Royal Institute of International Affairs. Um, Okay, so would you say that that was uh, was a, a a major cog in the wheel? I mean, were there major and minor cogs in this three hundred uh, this committee of three hundred wheel? Yes, he was one of the minor cogs, but it was an important one because of his ability to convey the instructions of the RIIA directly to the president. And of course, when Kennedy found out about this, he's called him in and sacked him on the spot and he told his wife I think he's a madman and he told his staff not to allow him into the White House ever again um, okay so what what in the world gave the RIAA the right to issue commands to the President of the United States that's a very very good question and it's one that's difficult to answer in a few words except that you need to know that everything that was ever done in foreign policy Anything else that was uh, given to the State Department or the President to do was came from the Committee of 300, and Chatham, Home, Chatham House, or IIA, was one of the executives mm-hmm. to carry out those things, to give them to the President, and to make sure that the commands were carried out. So the, the conduit was lost. Okay, the conduit was cast. So you would say going back to the to the Wilson administration? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, In fact, since the Wilson administration, we've never had a proper Secretary of State 
who's not been under the grip of the Committee of 300. Okay. I would like to to turn to the first chapter of your book, The Committee of 300. Last week we talked a lot about uh, the Kennedy assassination, which was in the latter chapters of the book, and I wanted to do that because that is an event that is still fresh in the minds of many Americans, and I wanted then to work backwards into into history and find out the connections, the web that has been woven between uh, the, the powers behind the throne and uh, and current events. Of course, there are events, uh, a lot of events that have taken place since the Kennedy assassination, which I'd love to talk to you about at some point in, in time, too, including current wars and, and uh, an inclination to go to war with Iran. But I'd like to work backwards now, if we could, and go to Chapter 1 of your book, and there were two men in particular, and perhaps you've answered my next question in part, but there were two men in particular that uh, that you believe, that were influential in getting you to see the connection between the operations of the United States uh, and this bigger uh, committee of 300, and they were Woodrow Wilson and H.G. Wells. Could you tell us uh, about these two men and, and how the lights sort of went on in your mind, uh, with respect to the connection uh, to the Committee of 300 of the U.S.? H.G. Wells played a leading role, of course, in shaping the policies at home and the foreign policies of the British East India Company, which he took from their documents. And these policies he formulated to apply to the United States, and that way inflicted severe damage upon the young American republic. And this, the time frame for this would be what, late 1800s, early 1900s? Early 1900s. Early 1900s. And, of course, Woodrow Wilson uh, was our president during the First World War, and you did talk about it in another very, very interesting book that people should also uh, buy, and that's the uh, Tavistock Institute, about how the uh, power behind this, so to say, how the British royalty and then later financed by the Rothschilds uh, was instrumental in uh, in propagandizing a pro-war uh, message to the British people and the American people, actually. Uh, so we had Woodrow Wilson then, and of course Woodrow Wilson was our president when we put in the Federal Reserve Bank as well uh, in uh, 1913 or thereabouts that time. Uh, so what what about uh, Wilson then? How, how does he connect? Besides the Wilson was seemingly a harmless professor from Princeton University but he was far from harmless, and uh, he got America into the First World War against the wishes of 87% of the American people, and that's a huge percentage. Uh, somehow they managed to bring this about and persuade Congress to send the troops over to France to participate in a war that had nothing to do with America, and the young men who went from this country to lose their lives in foreign fields were not at all informed about what they were going to fight for. They certainly weren't fighting for queen and country or king and country or president and, as it is in America, president and country defending the United States. It's uh, a far cry from that. And they went marching off to war not knowing what they were going to fight for. Mm -hmm. Well, how would that be different, let's say, from World War II? Did our, did our troops know what they were fighting for in World War II? Well, they certainly did. World War II, as you know, was actually brought on by uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, Churchill was promised by uh, Roosevelt that uh, he would get America into the war. But he couldn't do it directly. So what he did was he moved the fleet, American fleet, from 
safe harbor in San Diego and put them right in harm's way in uh, the big harbor at Pearl, at Pearl Harbor. Nobody to this day knows why he did that. There's no explanation anywhere to be found for such a move. That, of course, placed our fleet well within the range of the Japanese fleet and within just within striking distance of their massive uh, aircraft carrier force. And uh, they committed 90% of their planes to attack Pearl Harbor. As we know, it was a disaster for the United States, and we lost most of our battleships except those whose commanders had disobeyed orders and decided to steam away out of harm's way. So most of the fleet was destroyed, and many, many people were killed at the airfields that uh, were theirs as well. And uh, it was a great, huge loss. So Roosevelt did this. He knew about it happening. He knew it was likely to happen. And that was his way of declaring war upon Japan. And he said, he called us this infamous day. And I tell you what, I think it's not so much the day that was infamous, but as Roosevelt, that he used this machination, the scheming and planning, to carry out his promise to Churchill that he would get the United States into the Second World War. And, of course, Congress was only too happy to declare war against Japan. And that brought them into the war. Yeah. So the soldiers who went over to Second World War knew what they were going there for. Okay. But there was a... a, a, a there, the war was contrived. I mean, it was... Um, oh, it was certainly a contrived situation again. Right. Right. And there, H.G. Wells had a lot to do with that. And as you know, he was a member of the Theophist, Theophist Society, along with Bertrand Wells, Bertrand Russell, and Sidney and uh, Beatrice Webb. Mm-hmm. These were all people who were ardent, ardent socialists. Yeah, I think uh, they may have been members of the uh, of, of an institution uh, known as the... Um uh, the name escapes my memory now in London um, something society I can't remember the name of it the, it was a socialist group that Tony Blair has been a part of uh, subsequently and of course John Maynard Keynes and others uh, the Fabian the Fabian uh, socialist Fabian society yes. yeah, I think they were all members of that these were intellectuals these, these were elite uh, you know people that had gone to the top universities I suppose Oxford and uh, those those kinds of places right well, Wells was a compatriot at Oxford uh-huh. with Julian, Julian and Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wells also selected key elements for the willis Harmon mk Ultra experiment. Hmm. So he, he was very well up to the task that had been allotted to him to uh, do as much damage as he could to the United States. Yeah, I think in, in going back to World War II, it's important to note, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that, uh, you know, the Japanese, uh, that we were getting in the way of the oil flow uh, to Japan, and that was one of the reasons they had to, they had to hit us as well. Is that well, your there, there were several reasons. They agreed with the British that they'd cut off the rubber supplies from Malaysia mm-hmm. so that Japan had no means of having a, making tires in their plants, and they cut off the flow of oil as well from Europe and uh, from the Middle East so that Japan was left without, would have been left without any oil as well. Mm. And that's the principal reason why Japan was engineered or contrived into attacking 
at Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So, so we get to this whole issue, Dr. Coleman, of the need to to have wars, and the Committee of Three Hundred seems to be continuously wanting to have wars. I guess because it's profitable to their members, to this to this elite group. Is that the idea? It's not only very profitable, but they're able to do things that would not otherwise be possible for them to do. In war, they're able to get things done that would not otherwise, except for say for war, to get done without and that, wars. And, and that is because individuals will relinquish their freedoms, or, or war sort of during war, uh, governments just allow them to have more power, or what? Yes, that's right. Uh, we we only have a couple of minutes left in today's show, and I, I regret that. Uh, unfortunately, there are other things that we've put on the, on the show that, have, that is crowding out the time I have with you. But I, I really hope that you can come back and talk some more. I mean, we just barely scratched the surface. We talked about the Kennedy assassination last week. I'm trying to, to try to help people understand and, and gain a better understanding myself of the connections of these ruling elite, the powers behind the throne, because I think it's important to understand where we're heading. Uh, the Committee of 300, you name them in your book. There's 300 of them. Uh, the book, again, is the, the Committee of 300. Uh, and, uh, you know, people, you've got to check out uh, Dr. Coleman's website. It's thecommittee300.com. Um, and, but we, we want to get into some of these uh, names, some of these people, some of these institutions. You mentioned uh, a moment ago the RIAA and its influence in terms of the information flow and the control of the White House by this group. But we want to go and talk to some uh, about some others. Uh, and, and if you can come back with me in another week or two, you know, there are people like, uh, well, there's like the Club of Rome, the Venetian black nobility we've talked about with other guests on this show have been, has, has been mentioned in the past. We know the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Council of Foreign Relations. These are organizations that, uh, the Bilderbergs, that seem to have some connection to uh, the Committee of 300. And I know that you have written extensively. And, folks, I want to tell you, that if you read this book, it is very, very interesting. It is a very interesting book. We've talked in the past about uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which I have believed was a very, very important book for Americans to understand. Who owns the Fed and why is it there? That ties in perfectly with Dr. Coleman's work. The Committee of 300 goes deeper into this, uh, into this web, into this power behind the throne, and I think answers an awful lot of questions as to why things are the way they are, why the banks get bailed out, why the average people are being really uh, de- becoming more and more destitute, and why uh, we are becoming enslaved internationally and also within our own country. Dr. Coleman, I want to thank you so much for coming back, and I hope that we can have you back sometime in the near future so we can pursue some of these other issues and some of these other questions, but I hope more than anything that people will take uh, the time to uh, to, to visit uh, Col- uh, to visit uh, I'm sorry uh, the committee uh, it's the committee or committee 300.com uh, and sign up for Dr. Coleman's uh, newsletter which is an excellent newsletter keeping contemporary events in the context of this, these historical events that we've been talking about on this show uh, Dr. Coleman thank you so much for coming back give our listeners that telephone number once more as I seem to have misplaced it well, uh, first of all, I must, I'm sorry, I must correct you about the, the, uh, the website. It's coleman300.com. Okay, excellent. And, and the phone and number? Our phone number is a toll-free number, 1-800-942-0821. 
and thank you for having me this morning on your show. Well, it's, it's fantastic to have you once again, Dr. Coleman. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back uh, with Gordon Chang, and he's got some things to say about China. China is very important in the world's economy today, and sometime we'll ask Dr. Coleman if he has some ideas of connections between China and the U.S. and the larger power struggle as well. But don't go away. We'll be right back with Gordon Chang. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Gordon Chang, Gordon uh, is a lawyer and an author of a Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. That was released by Random House in 2006. And the book that we want to talk about today and focus on uh, is called The Coming Collapse of China. Uh, he is a columnist at Forbes, uh, the Daily, uh, and, uh, and the Daily, and blogs at uh, World, of, World Affairs Journal. Gordon uh, lives uh, lived actually in the past and worked in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades, most recently in Shanghai uh, as counsel to the American law firm uh, Paul Weiss, and earlier in Hong Kong as a partner in the international law firm Baker & McKenzie. His writings on China and North Korea have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, and Barron's. Um, he has given brief uh, briefings at the National Intelligence Council, the CIA, the State Department, and the Pentagon, and has appeared before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He has appeared on CNN, Fox uh, News Channel, 
Fox Business Network, CNBC, MSNBC, PBS, and BBC, and Bloomberg Television. Welcome, Gordon, uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you very much. Really good to have you. Uh, your book is really a fascinating read, um, the, uh, the one we want to focus on, The Coming Collapse of China. Uh, it was written in 2001, uh, and China so far has not collapsed. That doesn't mean uh, that you're not going to be right about it, but certainly, I mean, one of the criticisms that I've heard um, about the book is that, uh, yeah, Chang has been saying this for a long time, uh, and so he's losing his credibility. How do you respond to that charge? Well, I said in coming collapse that it would occur within about a decade, and so that's 2011. I, I may be a year or two off, but clearly what we're seeing right now is uh, the Chinese economy is crumbling. Um, if it's growing, it's, it's growing at only 1% or 2%, basically the same rate as the United States, and it's the society is turbulent. We're seeing protests from one end of the country to the other, um, you know, in 2010, the last year for which we have statistics, there were perhaps as many as 280,000 large demonstrations. But what's really occurring is the number of, of protests are going up, but what's really occurring is they're becoming more violent. So we're not only seeing strikes and demonstrations, we're seeing riots, insurrections, bombings. And, and it's really because the Communist Party no longer has an answer except for repression. I think most people in China right now believe that a one-party system is no longer appropriate for a modernizing society like China's, and, and therefore the only way the party can really stay in power is to use coercive tools. And that's what we're seeing today as the political system is becoming more closed, and we see all sorts of negative trends. Communist Party is splintering. Central government is the authority of the central government is eroding. Um, we're seeing the military start to break free of civilian control. This is not a good story. Hmm. Really, it's uh, it certainly isn't the kind of thing that we hear the bulls on China focusing on uh, the likes of uh, Jimmy Rogers or uh, let's say um, the, the the gentleman that you interviewed in in uh, Vancouver. Um, Frank Holmes, uh, the numbers certainly, you know, when people, the bulls, will talk about, uh, uh, you know, the number of people and the standard of living being so low relative to the West, and then they extrapolate what it would mean in terms of demand for world's goods if the Chinese people on average had just a quarter or a half of the living standards that the United States enjoys right now. And I guess what you're saying is there's structural problems, there's problems in the economy, there's problems politically that are going to get in the way of uh, China really realizing uh, those kind of, that kind of potential. And, and would you say that it's, uh, uh, it's a lack of a free enterprise system? Is that part of the issue here? That's, that's part of the issue, um, but there are also so many others. You know, if we look at the 35 years of virtually uninterrupted growth in China, there were basically three conditions that created that. Uh, one of them was Deng Xiaoping's transformational policies of reform and opening up. Um, we then had a benign international environment after the end of the Cold War, which meant the political barriers to trade fell. And then China was also benefiting from its demographic dividend, which was its extraordinary bulge in the workforce. But these three conditions either no longer exist or are disappearing fast because China is no longer reforming. Matter of fact, it is anti-reform on balance. Now we see a much more difficult global environment as countries are much less tolerant of China's predatory trade policies. And the demographic dividend is turning into a demographic tax. 
the workforce is going to level off and start to shrink uh, perhaps as early as next year, and the country as a whole, the population will do that perhaps in 2020, maybe 2025. So all of these things that propelled China are are now working against it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I think probably for our listeners it would be very advantageous to go back and look at a little bit of Chinese history and try to understand uh, China now, the institution, the Communist Party as as it exists now, perhaps go back in history and talk about how China evolved from the days of, uh, well, say, let's say Sun Yat-sen at the turn of the century, the last century, uh, and then and then walk our way through that. I would like to start out by talking a little bit of, and have you talk about your chapter one in your book. It's uh, titled The Dinner Party, The Revolution Has Grown Old. And you quoted uh, Mao Zedong there who, who said, and I quote, a revolution is not a dinner party, a writing or writing an essay or painting a picture or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained and magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. End of quote. Well, can you give our listeners a short version of Chinese history, maybe starting with uh, that period, uh, Sun Yat-sen? Uh, and and how uh, China evolved uh, from that time to, to the present. So when Sun Yat-sen died, uh, well, well, let's start with Sun Yat-sen. What sort of a government did he put in place? Well, there was a revolution in 1911, and in 1912, the following year, um, the Republic of China was born and ending 2,000 years of imperial rule. The Qing Dynasty fell. Now, Sun Yat-sen's republic didn't really have a good start. It was turbulent. Uh, we saw a civil war in China between uh, the Kuomintang, which was the ruling party, and Mao Zedong's communists. And the communists prevailed in 1949, just after World War II, um, uh, after the Japanese had invaded, and, and had actually caused so much trouble in China. Um, Mao, uh, as he pointed out, um, came to power not through a dinner party, but through um, essentially uh, armed rebellion and eventually a, a full-scale civil war. And, and the first years of the People's Republic were actually marked by a lot of economic growth um, because you know, he had this uh, program of uh, heavy industrialization. It worked in the Soviet Union in the beginning. It worked in China in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mao then had a number of policies, including the Great Leap Forward, which created unimaginable suffering. Perhaps as many as 30 to 70 million people died in an artificial famine. You then had the Cultural Revolution in the middle of the 1960s, and that lasted for a decade. Um, but all of this came to an end when Mao died in 1976. Deng Xiaoping took over, uh, then had his uh, revolutionary policies of of putting China back on a more stable basis, of uh, partially opening up the economy, but also of trying to dismantle some of the controls of a centrally administered state. And and that's why we've had this extraordinary boom. Um, And so really what China's gone through in this last hundred years from you know, starting from 1911, has been an extraordinary period in the history of China, which has, of course, um, you know, had a turbulence, had prosperity, had everything. Yeah. Well, you, so you really just, so Mao Zedong, uh, or let's say post-Mao Zedong, the the apparatus that was put in place uh, by Mao Zedong was 
largely, I mean, a lot of it was disassembled, that must have created some dissension within government, and there must be some people not very happy about that. Well, you know, reform and change always creates losers, creates unhappiness, creates turbulence in society, and and that's, you know, what we saw in the 1980s and the 1990s, um, where we had, for instance, the partial reform of state enterprises. A lot of workers were put out onto the street, often with very, very few benefits. And, and so that did cause trouble, but China got through that. Um, uh, there, there has been, um, in the period of reform, uh, of course, many dislocations. So, for instance, we had uh, unparalleled growth in the late 1980s, leading to inflation and the mismanagement of growth. And, of course, that ended up with tragedy in 1989 in June with the Tiananmen Massacre. Um, since that time, um, China has been relatively quiet up until the last two or three years when we have seen, again, a lot of turbulence in society created by growth. Prosperity has made Chinese society unstable. And so what we have seen is China has grown more prosperous. It's become more turbulent, which is not what most people would expect, but that is, in fact, what we have seen. And right now, um, the country is only being held in place through increasing coercion. The Communist Party is much more coercive today than it was, let's say, even five years ago. And, you know, as we look back in um, the period, even after Mao, um, there have been periods of, of relative openness in the Chinese political system. Today is one where the party has many pretensions of locking the country down. Hmm. Would you say, um, I, I was actually thinking now as you were saying that, that uh, on, a, on a discussion I had with a uh, stewardess in Cathay Pacific, uh, who lives in Hong Kong, she is concerned that there may be increased um, uh, control over over Hong Kong by uh, by Beijing. Do you see that as a possibility? Uh, it's not only a possibility, it, it's happening right now. Hong Kong has gone through an extraordinary three or four months. Um, you know, Hong Kong be, uh, was handed over from Britain to the People's Republic in 1997, and it followed a period of a lot of patriotism. But what we have seen in the last three or four months is real concern in Hong Kong about what Beijing is doing. And it started over some pretty minor incidents, and it's been largely cultural. Um, um, and we're seeing Hong Kong people starting to identify themselves as Hong Kong um, Hong Kongers and, and not as Chinese or as Chinese only secondarily. That's very much concerned Beijing. Um, we have seen all sorts of antagonisms relating to Hong Kong women coming to, uh, Chinese women coming to Hong Kong to give birth. We have seen controversies over all sorts of proposals of further economic integration. Um, there have been a number of very corrosive comments um, from both sides. So, for instance, a Peking University professor a couple months ago called Hong Kong people dogs. That ignited a firestorm that uh, is continuing today. So it is a very interesting situation. Mm. You, um, there, there, of course, is a religious order there that has the Gulong, uh, what, what is the name of the organization? that Gulong, is Falun Gong. And what is, the, what is the issue that the government has against them? This is uh, essentially an outgrowth of a number of uh, other controversies that the Communist Party has with other religious groups, including Christians and Buddhists and about everybody else. 
Um, the Communist Party is jealous about its monopoly on power and doesn't like to see any sort of organization. Um, Falun Gong uh, or Falun Dafa is a very organized religion, um, and um, there was a, a big demonstration during the era of Jiang Zemin in the late 1990s, and the Communist Party became very concerned about uh, the ability of uh, the Falun Gong to replace the Communist Party. So it, it launched an unprecedented crackdown, which continues to today. But it really is is only a little bit different of the crackdown that we see against the Catholic Church, against House Protestant churches, um, against uh, Tibetan Buddhism, against uh, Muslim, uh, the Muslim faith. This is really a very tragic story that we're seeing played out in so many different religions. It, uh, it is sort of contrary to what I read on page 58 of Jimmy Rogers' book, Adventure uh, Capitalist. And, um, and, of course, this was written a few years ago, so maybe what he said then isn't true now. But he talked about how in China he had, uh, um, I don't remember where it was, somewhere in China they, he and his, uh, his wife had passed this church, and then they said, wait, a church. And they went back and they looked at it and and they met up with the people, and uh, he talked about how they were not only free, but how the priests were being paid by the by Beijing, by the government. Uh, and so, you know, he's he's trying to make the point that uh, that the Chinese people are free to worship. I mean, that seems to be what he's trying to say. And what you're saying is definitely not that's not the case. If Jimmy Rogers said that, he was completely wrong. Um, probably from your description, he went to what is known as the Patriotic Church which is controlled by Beijing, and, and there are patriotic Catholic churches and patriotic Protestant churches, um, but uh, the majority of Christians want to pray in, in, their own, um, in their own way without the interference of the state, and uh, I'm afraid that Jimmy Rogers was completely wrong. I mean, he's a great commodity um, expert. He's a great expert on all sorts of things financial, um, but when it comes to um, religion in China, uh, I'm afraid he doesn't know very much. Well, I was uh, I was thinking to myself that it would, uh, the same thing would apply anywhere when government gets involved and starts paying for things. They're going to have something to say about how the organization is run, and I would guess that there probably is some interference uh, with respect to the theology that's taught in a church like that. That was my thought as I as I read what Jimmy was saying. Uh, well, it's really uh, it, it really is interesting. Uh, more than interesting, it's going to have some ramifications, certainly on on global commerce uh, as well. I'd like to go back, if we could, and um, we got about five minutes before the break here. But I'd like to go back and look a little bit at uh, Mao Zedong uh, and and that time frame. It seems as though uh, he had to have, as you talk in your book about it, he seemed to have to have a continuous revolution. I mean, does this go along with this? A revolution is not a dinner party. We, you know, we've got to keep fighting uh, for what we for what we were standing for. And and there was one sort of campaign after another. You talked about. Um, which began really in about 1957, uh, there was the Hundred Flowers Movement. What was that about? Well, the Hundred Flowers Movement was really interesting, uh, and today China scholars debate over what Mao intended. But essentially the idea was to allow scholars and others to, to talk about what was wrong in society. 
And so it was sort of like a flowering of um, discussion and intellectual ferment. Um, it didn't last very long because Mao didn't like what uh, people were saying, and so he had uh, a number of people imprisoned and worse. Uh, essentially, uh, scholars say, well, you know, Mao changed his mind when he heard what he said. Some thought that this was a deliberate plot to um, see what people might actually say and to identify uh, the dissidents. Mm. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of disagreement over this, and I don't know what the real answer is, but it was uh, clearly ended up in a bad way for people who expressed views that Mao did not like. Well, totalitarian governments don't like views that are different than theirs, and I think the same thing probably holds true in the United States, unfortunately, um, although we certainly have more freedom than, than I believe they have in China. What about the uh, anti-rightist campaign? What was that about? Well, again, it was another campaign against people who um, Mao um, you know, didn't like. Um, you know, Essentially, Mao had this concept that there should be continuous change to prevent government from being ossified to being bureaucratized um, and so uh, rightists were people who had um, on the other side of the issue who felt that uh, China should be different and uh, certainly not if, if even if dominated by communism there should be different strains of communist thought and so this is another attempt by people to try to push China in a direction that Mao felt was disadvantageous so uh, again, we had a lot of uh, intellectuals imprisoned. So the intellectuals were sent off to prison, or worse in some cases perhaps. Uh, we, we do have to go to break now, um, uh, Gordon, and when we come back I want to pick up on, on some more of what went on during Mao Zedong's day. Uh, so uh, starting with the, the Great Leap Forward, which was a big deal. Uh, so we'll be right back. Uh, we do have to go to break, so don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back with Gordon Chang. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. <laughs> 